So when we bought this building, 2828 Crossover, we seemed to inherit three buildings worth of junk that was in here. Those of you who were here when, when we bought it, you'll remember we had a forest of fica trees, fake ficus trees, and like a garden of plastic plants all over the place. I have no idea why they had this. In the attic, there was box after box, and seriously, hundreds of ceramic eagles. We had enough Christmas decorations to decorate not just Fayetteville, but also Springdale, Bentonville, and Rogers. Not just the churches, the whole towns. And then we had bookshelves and bookshelves stuffed with books. All kinds of books. Kids' books. I don't know how many sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica we had with it. We had theology books and Bibles and those chaste romance novels. My goodness, we had a lot of them. And so we had all these bookshelves. Before we moved in, we filled up three entire roll-off containers, dumpsters, the big ones. We filled three of those before we even moved in. Over the course of the next few years, we filled up a couple more with that. And of all those books, it took us years to go through all the books. We sold what we could. We gave away what we could. We donated what we could. And then what was left finally filled up about half of one of those dumpsters, it seems like. And of those that went in, the vast majority were of a certain popular author who wrote about the end of time the end times. We had, I kid you not, I cannot count how many copies, full set copies of the Left Behind series we had. Like just boxes and boxes of these books. And like I said, we sold everything, gave everything away, begged, borrowed. You know, it was like those sacks of zucchini squash that everybody's getting on there from the Guardians right now. I mean, they seem to multiply we would get rid of some and more would appear. But we finally did that. We finally um, get, narrowed them down and got rid of them. And as I've thought about that, I've thought about, of all the things that we could have had, of all the things that were here, you know, those, those sets of books were the ones that really stand out, that we had the most. What is it about that? I mean, it speaks to this fascination that our society has with things about the end of, time, end of end times, about what's going to happen, about what's coming, about these apocalyptic futures. And it's not just those books. It's not just religious imagination. If you look at TV now, if you look at entertainment, how many zombie movies, how many end time scenarios, how many dystopian futures do we have? The question always, is always being asked, what's next? What's going to happen what, what's the meaning? What's the purpose? Who's in control? All these questions are being asked through these books and through these movies. And today, we start a study in the book of Revelation. We start a look at the book in a way that drives a lot of that imagination. But here's the deal. Revelation is not a guidebook for the apocalypse. 
It's not a calendar for judgment or a secret code book for salvation. Even though it has been misinterpreted as many of these things, that's not what it is. But if it's not those things, then what is it? Well, we're going to spend the next eight, nine weeks in depth answering that question. So pray with me as we start. God, your word is given to us to bless us, to guide us, to draw us to you, to draw us into deeper intimacy with you, our true selves, with each other, and to be light in this world. And God, I confess, I've not felt adequate for this book. I've not felt adequate for this portion of Scripture. And I confess that because I'm not leaning in my own adequacy here, but in the guidance of the Holy Spirit that you've put in this community and the voices of those that have gone before us who've looked at this soberly and intently and throughout the ages. So God, I ask that you would protect our imaginations, that you would guide us, but you would also give us freedom to let go of what is wrong and grace to accept a different way of thinking. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I find when we look at something like Revelation or Daniel or, or any of the apocalyptic literature is we kind of fall into two camps on this. In one camp, we've kind of got the, uh, the Nick Cage camp, right? National treasure. We're going to figure this thing out. We're going to, we're going to find the secret codes. We're going to Indiana Jones our, Jones our way into the Ark of the Covenant, right? Like, we're going to figure this thing out. Like, there's a message, there's a map, there's a formula, and we're going to get into it. We're going to do our numerology and our forecasting and our mythology, and, and man, we're going to do this thing. And those, those folks are kind of even on the good side, because there's a negative side. There's a whole industry generated and based on apocalyptic fear. Not too far from where we are right now, there's a whole condo development that is built to withstand the end of times. That they're, they're selling them purely on the basis that Branson, Missouri is the safest place on the planet to be when the apocalypse comes. Because man, right? Who's the, who's the violin player up there, the guy? Sochi, yeah, we gotta have us some Sochi through the end of times, man. Nothing gets you through the apocalypse like that, right? But there's this whole industry that preys on fear. It preys on fear with it. Then you've got the other camp, and I would put myself most of my life squarely in this other camp that is just scared of it all. Like I, I start to dip my toe in it, and I feel like an alligator's coming out after me. I don't want to get anywhere near it. So... You avoid it. Well, neither one of those responses is adequate. Neither one of those responses is sustainable. Um, I loved what G.K. Chesterton said about this, about the book of Revelation. 
He said, though St. John the evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as his own commentators. The people who have made entire careers out of making proclamation on what Revelation meant are in some ways much more imagined than any of the monsters we will see in Revelation. We also need to know that as we look at this book, it's, the, it's kind of the last one to make the cut in the Bible. Of all the books that were included in our canon of Scripture, our 66 books, Revelation was the one that caused the most controversy. Martin Luther, during the Reformation, thought it should be just cut out, burned, and never read again. There was serious disagreement among the people whether this should be even be included in the Bible. Finally, it was with that. But it's unique in that there was so much controversy about including it in canon. So for us to, to understand that background, understand the propensities of one side versus the other, we need to really do a little background before we get into the text. So normally about this time is when I read the text and make some comments. I'm not going to do that today. We're laying the foundation for weeks of study. And we want to go through and be very secure in what we're looking at before we actually look at it. So let's do this. So first of all, we need to ask, what kind of book is Revelation? The images, the message are going to strike us as unique in the the Bible. Here's what to understand. First of all, though, Revelation, for the most part, does not give us any new information. Now, it may be shocking to you. Revelation doesn't tell us anything new. But what it does is it reimagines what it's already told us. Revelation, it's fitting that it's the last book in our Bible because what it does is it looks at all the material, all the content, all the characters that come up to that point, and it recapitulates it. It retells it, but it retells it in a different way. But it's the same story. It's the same stuff. It's just the Bible reimagined. It jolts our familiarity with our picture of a familiar Jesus and frames him as a cosmic Lord. This book self-identifies as an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. Because we have to understand what kind of genre this is if we're going to understand it. Let's look at the first of those, an apocalypse. The apocalypse just means unveiling, revelation. That's, That's what it means. It's just a looking behind the scenes. It's a way of understanding things we can't normally see, hear, taste, smell, or touch. It's a glimpse into that reality that surrounds and infuses us, informs and covers us, but we have to learn to pay attention in order to see it. It's not obvious in what it does. Apocalypses speak to that place that calls us to mystery, that calls us to live for something more, to hope for something that we can't necessarily understand. I like this definition of what an apocalypse does. It's not that the here and now are left behind in an escape into heaven or the eschatological future, but the here and now look quite different when they are opened to transcendence. We're going to talk more about that. And in this sense... um, Revelation is the only apocalyptic book in the New Testament, even though Jesus makes a few apocalyptic statements. This is the only apocalyptic book 
But if we look at Daniel, if we look at some of the other writings of the time, Enoch, Ezra, Baruch, we'll see how this genre fits. The other thing that this does is that this is prophetic. Now, there's two ways to understand prophecy when we look at this. One is foretelling, that a prophecy says, hey, this is going to happen. And in the Bible, that's almost always linked with our action or inaction, with our repentance or our hard-heartedness. It gives us, it gives us a set of circumstances that said, hey, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. So it, it's, it's telling the future, but it's always tied to our current actions. Almost never is it just some set in stone thing that's going to happen, and we just have to kind of ride the ride to find out what's going to happen. It's not like that. The other thing is that it is forth-telling. It's that, it, that prophecy are messages from God given through human agent that emphasize God's character and nature. And it's usually linked, again, with our actions, with a call to repentance. It usually says something like, lift your eyes, look around, see what's happening. Understand the consequences, again, of your actions in the here and now, not just in the future. And the last thing, and this is the one that, that often gets missed, is this is an epistle. This is a letter. This is this is like many of the epistles that we read in the Bible. It was written to a specific time, a specific place, a specific people for a specific purpose. This is not some, this is not some bestseller that's written to make the author famous. This is not some um, apocalyptic novel imagination so that, so that the author can, can make money on it. No, this is pastoral. This is written to a place, to a people for a purpose. Now, there's a few other things we need to understand. And as you read this, again, we have to understand the idea that these writings would be somehow printed on a page, put in a book with other writings, and then read like that. The original authors had, they had no idea. They were still writing on scrolls at this time. And the writings were most often put down so that they would be read to an audience and heard, and remembered, and repeated, and done. And in a way, Revelation is more like a piece of performance art than it is a book. It was meant to be demonstrated. It was meant to be read out loud. And we, we struggle as the readers now to hear the inflection, to hear the irony, to hear the emphasis. We, we have to use a lot of discernment. We can't just sit down and read it like any other book. We have to remember that this was, this was performed. And so it falls into the category also of art. This is art. It's poetry. It's drama. It's meant to evoke an emotional response from the images, not just give information with that. Once we understand kind of what the genre is, what the, what the book is itself, we have to understand who the author is. And that's why we've spent so much time this year reading all of John's works, starting with the book of John, working through the epistles, and now here at Revelation. We've gotten to know John this year, right? We've gotten to know who he is, what his passions are, how he sees things. We understand that John is the most poetic 
of the gospel writers. He's the one who had the longest to reflect on Jesus' life, death, burial, ascension, and reign. He's the one who's gone from hearing the call of Jesus personally and understanding him as just a traveling, wandering, preaching day laborer to now cosmic Lord of the universe, Alpha and Omega, maker of time and history. So he has the longest to, to meditate on that. And, and can you imagine what that information, what that experience would do? How you would struggle to adequately set forth in words all that that meant. You want to talk about the most difficult writing prompt ever? Do that. Take everything that you know about Jesus throughout your entire lifetime and put it down into a book to describe it. Who, what words can contain that? What story could tell that? But John attempts it here. And he writes as a pastor. He writes as a theologian. And he writes as a poet. And he combines the language of all three in this book. And we have to be careful as we're reading to understand where each part comes from. Last of all, we have to understand the audience. <clears throat> Again, as an epistle and as a pastoral epistle, this was written to a specific people in a specific time at a specific place. Uh, my family, we had the, the blessing of living in Turkey one summer. Jen, you lived there as well. Um, Turkey's a phenomenal place. All seven churches that are written about here are in modern-day Turkey. And we got to visit, we got to stand in some of the ruins where these churches were that were written to. These were some of the first churches that were ever planted. They were, they were in the Roman Empire. They were away from Jerusalem. This is not primarily to a Jerusalem audience, which makes a big difference when you're listening to the Bible. This was written to the diaspora. The Jews that had converted to Jesus were part of the diaspora. That means they were Hellenized, or they had taken on a lot of the, the attributes of Greek culture. Even though it was a Roman Empire, Greek culture influenced the day-to-day, -day, the languages, the arts, the imagination. But they were also persecuted. Already by this time, the church was suffering persecution, both political and cultural. And can we imagine this group that had received this message, and now they were some of the first hearers, some of the first followers to walk out what it meant to be a Christian who had never met Jesus, maybe met one of the apostles, Probably not, probably got the message from someone else, accepted it, the Holy Spirit was working, was doing things, creating this community, but they, they were the first ones, they were still trying to figure it out. They didn't have this big long history to go back to. They didn't have the establishment to look back like we do of 2,000 years of faithful presence. No, this was new. And they were being persecuted. And they were being wooed to say, look, hey, just compromise, just bring it back into the culture, look. Greek culture had room for all kinds of gods. Greek culture had plenty of room. If you just play the game, go along, get along, you can have your God. That's fine. Just, just don't make a mess about it. Don't make a fuss about him being the only one, or that he's the ultimate Lord, or that all these other gods are actually demonic. Don't do that. Well, that's what the church did, and even today still has to do is make an exclusive truth claim. And it was costing the church. John loves these churches. 
and sends revelation to encourage them, not to scare them. In our teaching meeting this week, we, we had the students, the interns involved, and we talked about how so often this book is, is used to scare people and manipulate people with fear. And yet, as we're going to see as we read through it, we hear time and time again Jesus and John saying, fear not, fear not, fear not. This book was meant to encourage, to spur them into more boldness, not to get, them to, not to, get to turn them into a bunch of preppers holed up in the hills, but to make them bold evangelists who understood that the price they were paying with their lives, with their material possessions, was worth it. They were a group that was in desperate need of encouragement. So with all that set, with all that understanding, let's get into the text. So starting with Revelation 1. Y'all, listen, seriously, I've avoided this for years. This is a big moment, okay? I've avoided this for a long time. A revealing of Jesus, the Messiah. God gave it to make plain to his servants what is about to happen. He published and delivered it by an angel to his servant John, and John told everything he saw. God's word, the witness of Jesus Christ. How blessed is the reader. How blessed the hearers and keepers of the oracle, these oracle words, all the words that are written in this book. Again, we see this word, a revealing, an apocalypse of Jesus, a revealing of Jesus. The message is giving. The blessing is for, those who, for the one who received it, but also for those of us who hear it and those of us who act on it. This is the prologue to the performance. This is the person that comes out in the Shakespeare, right, and sets the scene, the narrator. And now we get into the action with that. And it starts off, this is, listen, for writers, you want to talk about drama? This is, this is great drama. Start off with these words, time is just about up. Now, that ought to get your attention. Wait a minute, what did I come to? Why am I here? Time is just about up. Listen up, folks. I, John, not me, John, John in the Bible. I, John, am writing this to the seven churches in Asia province. All the best to you. The God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. And from the seven spirits assembled before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, loyal witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of all earthly kings, glory and strength to Christ who loves us, whose blood washed our sin from our lives, who made us a kingdom priest for his father forever. And yes, he's on his way, riding the clouds. He'll be seen by every eye. Those who mocked and killed him will see him. People from all nations and all times will tear their clothes and lament. Oh, yes, the master declares, I am A to Z. I'm the God who is, the God who was, and the God who is about to arrive. I'm the sovereign strong. I, John, with, with you all the way in the trial and the kingdom and the passion of, of patience with, in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of God's word, the witness of Jesus. It was Sunday, and I was in the Spirit praying. I heard a loud voice behind me, trumpet clear and piercing, write what you see into a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned, and I saw the voice. Now let's pause for a minute here, because I just spit out, a bunch of crazy places, 
So let's put it in context a little bit. Patmos is an island off the coast of Turkey. It is a dry, rocky desert island where they sent troublemakers. If you didn't want to kill someone, they'd cross the line, but not quite enough to behead them or crucify them or dip them in oil. You exiled them. And Patmos was a special place for that. Um, Those of us who know Southern Arkansas, this is not the Patmos in Southern Arkansas, Chris. This island over in Turkey. John had been exiled there. We'll talk more about that in a minute. He wrote it to the seven churches. The biggest excavation, archaeological excavation in the world today is the city of Ephesus that's written about here. You can go to this place. My family's got to go there. It's an incredible place. You can walk through the streets. You can go into the amphitheater where they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and Paul caused this whole riot. And you walk around the city and you see all this stuff, and then they tell you, you know what? This is 10% of the town. They only have 10% of the town excavated. You look at the hills and stuff, and you go, oh my gosh. There's 90% of it is still unexcavated under the hills around there. So these were big cities. These were large cities. And as we'll learn going on, they're, they're their specific places like Laodicea. Do you remember what the, the prophecy for Laodicea was? Spitting you out because you're, you're not too hot or cold? We'll get into it. It's okay. It's not a quiz. Um, we'll get into that. But when you go there, you understand that they have hot springs there. And it was a very popular place to go for the springs. And if the springs are hot, it's like a hot tub. Yay, that's nice. Get in there. If it's cold, it had mineral content. It was good for you. If it's lukewarm, it smells like rotten eggs spew it out of your mouth. These were just specific places with specific imagery with that. But let's go back. Why was John exiled? Why was he on this? I mean, John's a good guy, right? This is a guy that writes about love. What possibly could John have done that was so egregious to get him exiled to a barren desert island? Well, it's connected to why the church needed this message. See, Christianity then was a threat to the powers and to the powerful. Christianity then was a threat to the status quo. It was a threat to tyrants, and it was a threat to the tyranny of the immediate and the tangible. It was a threat to the way things are. Christianity has always called its followers to live by a set of rules, by a moral compass, by a mode that puts it in direct opposition to the lies of the world. Christianity then and Christianity now always comes with a cost associated. Now that's difficult for us to see, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it, because we're comfortable, we're air-conditioned, nobody's out there waiting to put us in prison with it, but that was not the case here, and John was paying the price for that, for making the declaration, the very political statement, that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not a political party, not a political persuasion, but Jesus was Lord, and that got him exiled. And we have to pause. We do have to ask ourselves, how do we live? Where do we find ourselves? What controls our imaginations? What drives our fears? 
what fuels our hopes. What informs and forms our imaginations, personally and collectively. Another way, just what are we basing our lives on? Well, let's keep reading. John says, I saw a gold menorah with seven branches, and in the center, the Son of Man, in a robe and gold breastplate, hair blizzard of white, eyes pouring fire blaze, both feet furnace-fired bronze. His voice was a cataract like the sound of waterfalls rushing together, right hand holding the seven stars, his mouth a sharp biting sword, his face a peregrine sun. I told you, this is performance art, y'all. This isn't just information. This isn't, some, this isn't a sentence to be diagrammed and dissected. This is a vision for us to have who Jesus is. This ought to send chills up your spine, give you goosebumps when you hear it. This is Jesus. In the audience, most of them would have understand this is, again, this is kind of cut and paste imagery from the Old Testament, from the different prophecies, from the stuff. This isn't new. This is just centering it, reimagining it with Jesus. Now, you want to know what your response should be, what my response should be? It should be pretty similar to John's. John, this is what happened. John says, I saw this and fainted dead. <laughs> uh, that, come on, wouldn't you? If you really saw the Jesus that I just described, wouldn't you? I mean, come on, if he had a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes were fire and his hair was a blizzard, I mean, run away, faint dead, do something, but not just stand there. Well, John says he fainted dead, right? His right hand pulled me upright. His voice reassured me, don't fear. I am first, I am last, I'm alive, I died, but I came to life, and my life is now forever. Don't fear. Yep, this is Jesus, all right. <laughs> He's just repeating what he did all the time he was walking with the disciples, all the time he was talking to the lepers and to the outcast and to the lost and the lonely, saying, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. Kingdom's here. Same Jesus. Same MO. Same reassurance, same command. Don't fear. He says, see these keys I got in my hand? These keys. They open and lock death's doors. They open and lock hell's gates. Now write down everything which you see, things that are, things about to be. The seven stars in my right hand and the seven branch gold menorah, do you want to know what's behind them? The seven stars are angels of the seven churches. The menorah is seven branches of the seven churches. He talks about the churches again, but in a very different way as stars and angels and menorahs with this. And look, we could get caught up in what all that means, but don't miss the basic message. Here's the basic message. Church, don't ever think you're not important. Church, don't ever think this is just about getting together to sing songs, send kids to Mexico, offer some self-help deal. Come on, y'all. We got better things to do with our Sundays if that's all this is. This is a supernatural experience. This is the gathering of God's people to motivate and to bring about the healing of the world. To demonstrate what it looks like 
for human beings to live in the kingdom of God. This is about so much more than teaching Sunday school or preaching a passage or doing budgets. We need to do all those things, but we don't do them because that's the thing. We do them because there's something else. And that's what John is trying to get through here. He's like, churches, come on, see yourselves like Jesus sees you. See yourselves as you are in Christ. Light and voice. The menorah was light to darkness. The angels were messengers to the world, to the voice. This is who we are, church. We are light and we are witness. We are illumination and we are voice. And we have one message to tell, and that is Jesus. We have one reality which defines us, and that is his word. We have one thing that binds us together and illuminates us, and that is the spirit. That is what's going on here with this. Dragons and horsemen, stars and seas made of crystal, it's going to be easy to be overwhelmed as we study this by the stunning imagery of this book. It's also going to be easy to lose sight that it's writing about the same Jesus who was born to Mary, who was baptized by John, the same Jesus who got tired and turned over tables in the temple, the same Jesus who submitted himself to deadly state-sponsored torture and religiously motivated scorn. We have to remember that Revelation is ultimately all about Jesus and that same Jesus that we've been studying all year. But here's the deal. Revelation also reveals much about us. See, it's not just a one-sided deal. Revelation doesn't just pull back the curtain on God and the cosmos and angels and all that. It pulls back the curtain on me. As we read this book as a church, it's going to pull back the curtain on us. All of us. What do we believe? What forms our imagination? How do we see ourselves fitting in all this? Revelation does its job, and it's not just about God, but it does it about us. It also does it about the world that we live in. Revelation has something important to say to us. What are we going to learn? What is the message that Grace Church needs to hear? What is the message that we need to take into this world? What are the issues that we face as a society that cause us to despair, to become complacent, cynical, siloed? What forms our imagination right now? Is it the 24-hour news cycle? Is it the constant crash of cultural demands? Is it just the slow aging of these mortal bodies? The concern that comes with that? Where are our eyes fixed? What are we seeing? Do we understand that there's so much more? We have to understand that the book of Revelation is going to hit us one way if we are content with the way things are if we benefit from current conditions, if we're on top, if we're ahead. 
It's going to hit us quite a different way if we're longing for something better, if we're oppressed and abused, illegal or enslaved, if this world doesn't work for us. I remember worshiping in a church in Gomel in Belarus. And Gomel received, was one of the chief cities that received received the fallout from Chernobyl, nuclear disaster. It was a city of about two million when it hit. When we got there, there was about half a million left. Been depopulated by three-fourths of its population. Everybody that could have left, left. We walked out of our hotel that first morning, and there were men in hazmat suits with Geiger counters measuring the radiation blowing by in the leaves that had fallen from the trees. And we walked into that church in Gomel and Pastor Vladimir greeted us. And then they started to worship. And it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. Because the people that were worshiping there, their hope wasn't in this life. Their hope wasn't that things are going to work out or They're going to get ahead. They were living under a death sentence. And yet they worshiped. I think the book of Revelation would have a very different meaning for them than it does for us. I think it would have a very different meaning for the, the Roma who are in the camp where John and Leslie have been in the Ukraine serving. I think if they read Revelation there, they'd be a very different response. I think there'd be a very different response from the barrio where we'll go to build a house in a couple weeks with this team. I think the response there as you read Revelation would be very different. Like I said, Revelation doesn't just reveal things about God. It reveals things about us. It's going to take work, y'all. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. This study is going to take work. It's not something we can just dip into and dip out of. It's not something that we can just take on superficial level. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Make up your minds now to devote yourself to this study. Make up your minds now to devote yourself to what is necessary to understand this, to read this text, to, do the, to follow the learning guide, to follow the questions, to be involved in the discussions. There's so much to be learned here, y'all. I thought about this unveiling. And in a way, we practice revelation every week when we come to the table. We're practicing revelation. Because look, when you take, when you take these elements... And you look at that cracker, and you look at that juice, what do you see? If we're just looking with our earthly eyes, if we're just looking with what our senses can behold, we see juice and a cracker. But what do we proclaim about this? What do we believe about this?
we proclaim this is the body and blood of Jesus. His tangible presence here with us as a community feeding us, supplying all our needs, joining us all around this table from the youngest to the oldest, the most able-bodied to the most disabled, all nations, genders, races, everyone here at this table joined together. That's what's really going on. We can't, yeah, we can't necessarily see it or smell it or taste it, but that's, that's what's happening here as we take this table. So let's practice that revelation today. Let's walk it out as we come together to this table. Thank you for being here this morning.